KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, draft resistance in the Vietnam era, there's a new documentary, uh, The Boys Who Said No. Its online launch is this weekend. We'll speak with one of the resistors featured in the film, Bruce Dances about his activism and his time in prison. He served 19 months. Also later in the hour, our critic Ella Taylor will talk about the new documentary about Pauli Murray, one of the most fascinating and little known activists and strategists of the civil rights and feminist movements. But first, what's the best strategy for Democrats in 2022 when the historic odds are against them for holding the House and 2024, which right now is not looking good for the House or the Senate or the presidency. For comment, we turn to Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of The American Prospect and a contributor to the LA Times op-ed page. Hi, Harold. Hi, John. Good to be here. Well, the New York Times on Sunday ran a huge political strategy piece by Ezra Klein, which starts out by declaring that Democrats are on the precipice of an era without any hope of a governing majority. Of course, we know they can win a majority of the vote, but still lose control of Congress in the White House because of the undemocratic bias of the Electoral College and the even more undemocratic bias of the Senate and the problems in the House caused by Republican gerrymandering, which is underway right now. Uh, so the coming year may be the last chance Democrats have of passing legislation for a long time, maybe a decade, as Recline says. So what can we do to fight the odds here? Well, one notable strategy comes from a, a pundit and data guy named David Shore, who says the data on public opinion and electoral geography are telling us what the Democrats must do to avoid congressional calamity next year. Here's his argument. To hold on to the House and the Senate, Democrats need to win states that lean Republican. Swing voters in those states are not liberals. They do not see the world the way progressives like us see it. They are working class people who didn't go to college, but polling is the way we can find out what they care about. And polling tells us they care a lot about prescription drug prices. They do not care about climate change. They do not care about defunding the police. Defund the police makes swing voters turn Republican especially Hispanic voters. They do not want amnesty for undocumented immigrants. So we are told the Democrats should not talk about climate change. They should not talk about reforming the police. They should not talk about immigration. They should focus pretty much exclusively on bread and butter economic issues. That's the only way it is suggested Democrats might be able to save their House and Senate majorities next year. What do you think? Well, I think Democrats have to walk a tightrope. I, I think it's certainly the case that particularly in the white working class, the not directly economic issues, not primarily viewed at first glance as economic issues, uh, don't play well with, uh, with that constituency. And it is largely true as well that the, the New Deal coalition was built around economic issues. Uh, there were all kinds of huge cultural, racial, religious fights dividing the Democrats and putting them in a permanent minority position in the 1920s. 
the Great Depression and Franklin Roosevelt came to the Democrats' rescue by enabling the Democrats, A, to change the subject, and B, deliver some tangible uh, remedies. Um, I think the Biden people get this yeah. uh, to a degree. And the mystery, of course, is why uh, Joe Manchin and his ilk don't get it, since they are blocking precisely the uh, kind of programs that David Shore asserts quite rightly that uh, these swing voters actually support. Uh, so that much is, is the case. Now, should the Democrats completely walk away from uh, issues that their base is deeply concerned about? But I don't think that's even politically possible. And I don't think it's politically possible partly because the people who walk precincts for Democrats and have started at least since uh, Obama and then intensified by Bernie making online contributions to the Democrats really care about those issues. That's one problematic about uh, David Shore's assertion. The second problematic, as many people brought up, and Ezra himself, who is a former writing fellow of the American Prospect, I should say, uh, you know, we were his grad school. As Ezra notes, it, it is not the case that Republicans uh, will cease discussing these issues just if the Democrats do. They will <laughs> yes. bring it up and Democrats have to have some kind of response. So I think David Shore is right in terms of the thrust of democratic messaging, but I don't think it's even possible to abandon uh, some of those other issues. Now, that said, some of those other causes, uh, most Democrat, you know, in some instances, most elected Democrats didn't actually support, certainly defunding the police, which in the current uh, state of affairs with uh, violent crime rates rising is is clearly an electoral non-starter. No Democrat ran on abolish the police. Yeah. No Democrat ran on defund the police. If you look at AOC's website or any of the other members of, of you know, the squad, none of them say abolish the police or defund the police. Right. And, you know, I mean, the position uh, basically has to be reform the police and give their uh, what should be social work responsibilities to actual social workers, not uh, not to cops. I think that's a tightrope that they should walk and that they have to walk and uh, that society needs them to walk uh, on a serious uh, police reform uh, position. Will, will Republicans continue to demagogue on that issue? Yes. But, you know, the Democrats aren't, aren't without offense and assuming uh, something actually passes in terms of the Build Back Better bill, you know, they can uh, go after the Republicans for opposing universal pre-K and child care and, and uh, negotiating prices down on drugs and uh, uh, offering uh, extending Medicare to vision and hearing and dental and all of that. So... It's not as if the Democrats uh, will lack uh, an offensive punch, uh, assuming uh, that uh, they can actually persuade a, a handful of their own to uh, go along with that. And how did the Democrats manage to flip the Senate seats in Georgia and Arizona? How did Biden manage to win back Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania? He has a strong economic program, but he also talked about climate immigration and and uh, reforming the police. He did indeed. And, and remember, the Democrats aren't running against themselves. They're running against the Trumpified Republican Party. You know, that complicates the Republicans' chore. 
And that uh, basically means that a lot of swing voters uh, who might not be voting Democratic, this was certainly the case in 2020, when confronted with the option of Donald Trump or some Donald Trump lookalikes, uh, decided to vote Democratic. And so, you know, it, it's, it's a more uh, multi-factor situation uh, than those who only read David Shore and don't go beyond that might, uh, might conclude. Uh, on the subject of the Trumpified Republicans, uh, also in the news, there's a group of Republicans who have declared they will support Democrats in the upcoming elections when those Democrats face Trump-endorsed Republicans. They're led by Christy Todd Whitman, who was the Republican governor of New Jersey in the 90s and worked in the Bush administration as EPA administrator after that. For starters, they said they would endorse and work for Mark Kelly running for re-election for the Senate in Arizona. Uh, what do you make of this move? Well, I actually don't think this marks a huge departure from what's been going on for the last several years. Uh, certainly conservative intellectuals, a lot of them have basically endorsed this uh, proposition, including neocons like Bill Kristol, including uh, O-line conservatives like George Will, who said he was voting Democratic in, uh, in, in, in 2020. And I don't know that the Democrats would have fared as well as they did in 2020 had not a number of Republicans whose politics were kind of like Christy Todd Whitman's or even to the right of Christy Todd Whitman's were already voting that way. So, you know, it's helpful, but I don't know that it's really all that new. I mean, we had the Lincoln Project of uh, political consultants for the Republican Party, uh, many of whom were well to the right of Christy Todd Whitman, who were already working against uh, the Trump ticket in 2020. Yes, and it would be nice if we had some higher profile current Republicans who are not Christy Todd Whitman, which is really a name from the past. Yes, it is. It is. It's a little like Grover Cleveland. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. Elsewhere in the news, there's a headline in the Washington Post, a record number of workers are quitting their jobs. This is something you follow. What's the story there? Well, yeah, I mean, the all-time record, at least since uh, uh, the uh, government has been charting, this was set in August with uh, 4.3 million workers quitting their jobs. Uh, this is an unusual thing to happen during a recovery. It was in in the recovery, workers, you know, get their jobs and, 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 and keep it. But this was also a record percentage for one in one month, uh, about 3% of American workers quit their jobs. And then the Post broke it down by sector. And no surprise, workers in the jobs that, you know, pay little, in which you have not great control over your hours, and which you are continually meeting with uh, all kinds of people uh, at a time when the pandemic has not gone away, those sectors had the highest quit rate. It was 7% in restaurants. It was 5% in retail. Those were the two highest, highest sectors. You know, and, and you know, I, as I've argued before, I, I, I think we're seeing sort of the how uh, a nation that is almost entirely non-union in the private sector how it goes on strike. It, uh, it, these are workers who don't have voice uh, in the workplace because uh, management has denied them the option of, of having a union. Uh, uh, so, so their alternative is exit, to use the 
two uh, options first stated by those uh, great social scientists, Albert L. Hirschman, and uh, they're exiting. The parallel to this is where there are unions, they're beginning to revive the strike again, which has pretty much been a dead duck ever since Reagan busted PATCO and fired all the air traffic controllers in 1981. Unions stopped striking because employers then were really uh, saying, okay, go ahead, strike, we'll, we'll fire you and we'll get a whole new workforce or we'll get you back uh, at, at much reduced uh, wages and benefits. So um, we're seeing this uh, even now, uh, the uh, union of everyone who's behind the camera on movie sets or TV sets or, or uh, streaming sets, if they're our streaming sets as such, uh, are, uh, uh, are now set to go on strike on, uh, on Monday. On Midnight Monday, uh, IATSE, the 60,000-member union that has contract with all Hollywood studios, said they're walking because uh, the, their pay has in, been, been in decline since uh, the TV seasons got much shorter and uh, streaming uh, uh, came and went and their hours are more irregular and their benefits are more irregular and darn it they just want a, a larger piece of the pie including and and their other complaint which yeah. as a resident of LA I'm familiar with yeah. they when they work they have to work like 14 hour days you know for 20 days in a row and and it's killing them yeah and and you you hear this again uh, that that interestingly enough is the battle cry of the Baker's Union, which has struck Nabisco and is uh, now striking Kellogg's uh, all across the nation. I mean, the Baker's, uh, it's the Baker's Confectionery Tobacco Workers and Grain Millers Union, which I have to confess in my 35 years or so of writing about unions, I have never written about, but they have now escalated just in the last like three months. They've waged three first at one place, then at uh, five factories, and now under Kellogg's a nationwide strike uh, because, uh, yes, they too are working these crazy hours and they don't want it. And so, you know, I mean, America historically produces more, uh, I think the technical economic term is shit jobs, <laughs> produces more shit jobs as a percentage of the entire job market in, in, in the country uh, than, than any other uh, advanced uh, uh, economy, uh, certainly more than in, in Western Europe, uh, in Canada and Australia and so on, and Japan. Uh, and in those jobs, or even in, not in those jobs, but in jobs that just re, you know, really ask people to keep crazy hours or, or hours that keep changing, that sort of thing, you're, you're seeing a revolt. You're seeing, you know, uh, uh, we're, we're mad as hell and we're not going to take it anymore to uh, repeat rather than coin a phrase. And finally, we've got to talk about the news from Texas. Elon Musk announced he's moving Tesla from Northern California to Austin. And he made that announcement just about the same time that Governor Greg Abbott issued an order banning private employers from requiring employees to get the COVID vaccines. Uh, the day after that, Tuesday, American Airlines and Southwest Airlines, which are based in Texas, said they would not follow the governor's order. They would defy Texas Governor Greg Abbott. And they were joined by ExxonMobil, Chevron, and J.P. Morgan Chase. We used to complain about ExxonMobil, Chevron, J.P. Morgan <laughs> Chase. All the time. <laughs> uh, and, uh, so what do you make of this new uh, split in the ruling class? 
Well, it's kind of fascinating, and it, it mirrors a kind of larger uh, rift in uh, the, the Republicans' historic base, which has always included big business. But uh, the Republican base has uh, basically gone off into its own counter-reality, and businesses uh, can't really handle counter-reality over which they have no control. They can fabricate their own realities, as the tobacco industry, let us say, did for years, and as the fossil fuel industry is still doing and denying the perils of their own product. But when someone else does that, and it sort of threatens their control, then, then they get up in arms. I might add that this is sort of, you know, I, I hate to say this, but this is the flip side of their resistance to unions. Uh, they don't want anyone telling them, damn it, what they can do, be it their own <laughs> workers or some cockamamie governor uh, who is backed by the most insane state uh, political party in uh, possibly in American history. Harold Meyerson, read him at prospect.org. Thank you, Harold. Always great to have you on the show. Always great to be here, John. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Draft resistance in the Vietnam War. It helped end that war, and now it's the subject of a new documentary, The Boys Who Said No. It will have its online launch October 15th to 17th. One of the leaders of the draft resistance movement who's featured in that film is Bruce Dances. He's one of my heroes of the 60s. He also wrote one of my favorite books about the Vietnam era. It's called Resistor, a story of protest in prison during the Vietnam War. He spent 19 months in prison for his resistance to the draft. After the war, he had a long career as a pop culture critic and editor, including 16 years as the arts and entertainment editor of the Sacramento Bee. Bruce Dances, welcome back. Hi, John. Good to see you. Well, the Vietnam era saw the largest movement against the draft since the Civil War. Draft resistance quickly became the leading edge of the anti-war movement. Resistors served the same role in the anti-war movement that freedom riders and students sitting in at lunch counters had played in the civil rights movement earlier in the 60s. You were one of the leaders of draft resistance. You served 19 months in prison as a result. There were a lot of other ways you could have avoided going to prison and avoided going to Vietnam. 27 million men were eligible for the draft during the Vietnam War. 25 million did not go. You were a student at Cornell. You could have gotten a student deferment. What, what else did people do to avoid going to Vietnam? Well, as we all know now, the war was very unpopular among Americans. So there were a lot of times people could stay in school as long as they were able to in graduate school and all that. Uh, there were many medical deferments for ailments such as, oh, I think I, heard, I think a president we had recently had a, what did he have? He had that- um, Bone spurs. Oh, bone spurs, that's right. And I think Rush Limbaugh, the late Rush Limbaugh had a cyst that kept him out of the- uh, out of the army. I mean, some people went to Canada, which was letting Americans come in as landed immigrants. Other people applied for conscientious objector status, which was 
which I think is fine, you know, um, wasn't for me at a certain point, but. Uh, you could yeah. have told them you were gay. You could have failed right. your physical. You could have gotten married. How did George W. Bush avoid going to Vietnam? Well, I think he first he had student deferments for many years, and then he was in the uh, Air National Guard where he seldom attended. Uh, <laughs> you know, and I think that kept him out. How did Dick Cheney avoid going to Cheney, Vietnam? Cheney, I think, had many student deferments. I think he had seven student deferments over the years. Um, and, and then there was, as you said, President Bonespurs, Donald Trump. Right. How come you didn't do any of these things? Well, I wanted to, I was against the war. I thought it was important by 1966 that um, people who were against the war sort of up the ante and take more uh, dramatic and more serious actions against the war. By that time, we had all been marching for several years, writing our Congress members, doing any number of protests going on, but nothing seemed to be stopping the escalation of the war. Just from the time I first got involved early in 1965 to when I tore up my draft card at the end of 66, the number of American troops was increasing, you know, exponentially, it seemed. I mean, by 67, we had 400,000 troops there. I mean, by the end of the decade, I mean, the numbers were um, unbelievable. And it seemed that our protests, even though they were getting louder and uh, larger and going all across the country, not just at elite Eastern universities, uh, we weren't affecting the ability of the government to wage the war. And I felt that for me, keeping a deferment or getting a deferment, because I refused my student deferment, just seemed like a cop-out. And uh, I thought it was important for people to stand up to the draft system and say no. 10,000 young men were indicted for draft resistance. Uh, 4,000 were imprisoned. You were one of those. What got you indicted? I was the first draft resistor in upstate New York. So that sort of singled me out. You know, I was at Cornell University. I, was the, I think I was the first student in, at that point uh, to become a draft resistor. Before that, I had been isolated, single men, often uh, Catholic pacifists, Quakers, things like that. I sort of came out of a dis- different tradition. It wasn't religious. I sort of came out of a political background. My parents were both democratic socialists in the 1930s, although by the 1960s, they weren't that distinguishable from Cold War liberals. And I actually had a lot of arguments with my dad, you know, uh, about, you know, about nonviolence, about the war and all that. But by the time it came around, it was my sophomore year at Cornell. You know, I had already been active. I was the president of the chapter of the Students for Democratic Society, which was the largest new left organization. And I just felt I couldn't cooperate anymore with the draft system. I mean, my draft card was sort of figuratively burning a hole in my pocket, you know, and, and I felt I had to take action. So in December 1966, before crowded Cornell, I gave a statement against the war. I said I would no longer cooperate. And I dramatically tore up my draft card into four pieces and I put it in a already stamped envelope and I marched over to a mailbox and I mailed it back to my draft board in the Bronx, New York. And frankly, I expected to be arrested right away, you know, because it was against the law to do that. You know, the Congress had passed in 1965 a law making it illegal and subject to a five years in prison, a $10,000 fine for mutilating or destroying your selective service card. And that's just what I had done. So uh, then how, when did you get arrested and what was your trial like? Well, it took a while. You know, first that, you know, after that, I got involved in organizing a larger draft card burning around six months later in New York and then in, in draft card turn-ins. 
Uh, I got indicted around five days before a draft card burning we organized in New York City in April 67. And one of my proudest documents I've ever, ever received when I got my FBI file was a, a memo from J. Edgar Hoover, the head of the FBI, to uh, Albany saying it's important that you indict this guy to the, um, you know, the grand jury, you indict this guy before the draft card burning, because obviously we want to scare people away and intimidate them. Um, I didn't come to trial until early 68. There were postponements. They, the Supreme Court hadn't yet ruled on whether that law making it illegal to tear up your draft card or burn your draft card was, was constitutional or not. Alas, the court decided it was constitutional. <laughs> I was tried. Uh, my trial was fairly quick. They, I had some great witnesses. I had Father Daniel Berrigan, uh, the Catholic priest, uh, as a um, as a character witness, Douglas Dowd, who was a well-known academic, a, a radical economist and a close friend of mine, uh, was a witness. I had a, I had a Protestant minister. I think I had a, a Quaker leader. I had my mother testifying about my <laughs> long, you know, and I spoke. But whenever we tried to really look at the war in Vietnam, the judge ruled it out of order. And very quickly, I was, I was convicted. It was sort of a fait accompli. I expected to be convicted because... I had done it. There was my draft card. You were guilty. You, you were know. guilty I, I as charged. The fact that I was resisting the draft. I, I was looking for a confrontation and I had I found one. Then you went to prison. What was it like for young middle class college kids like you to spend more than a year in federal, federal prison alongside people who were, I don't know, what should we call them? Ordinary criminals. Ordinary criminals. It was different, <laughs> that's for sure. Well, I was sent to Ashland, Kentucky, which is quite a, quite a distance away from New York City, where I'm from, or from upstate New York. And I think clearly it was to try to remove me from my contacts. By, by the time I went to prison, it was already May 1969. So there's a big gap between my action in December 66 when I went into prison. I was sent to a medium security prison. It wasn't a prison farm like some people went to, uh, but, you know, they had, uh, you know, barbed wire fences and gun towers and, uh, you know, electrified things. But it was a small prison. It was mostly guys under under 30, around five, 600 people. I'd say a lot of the people who were in prison were in there for car theft, drugs, mail fraud, things like that. We, when I first got there, there were only around six other draft resistors, although I think our numbers peaked at around 12. I have an ability to get along with most people. You know, I can play basketball pretty well. That helped. You know, just treating other people as human beings and treating other people, you know, decently, even if they might have a, uh, um, you know, a tattoo on their arm with the swastika on it, didn't mean they were necessarily going to hate me because I was Jewish. That was just what they did as a rebellious action on their part. You know, in prison, you get assigned a job. My job was as a teacher. So I was helping guys get their GEDs or learn to read or do basic math, which they needed, they needed to do to get paroled. So I got along with most people. It also helped. We formed a group in prison we called The Family. You know, this, is, this is 69 and 70s. This is the age of Woodstock. So we sort of had an alliance between the more political inmates and hippies uh, and, more, and both black and white political inmates. And our group, The Family, we sort of pooled our resources uh, you know, we got paid, what, 20 cents an hour for our work. So we were able to buy cookies for that, uh, you know, and hot chocolate or coffee or things like that. But we also had some muscle in our group. 
you know, my best friend was a bank robber who had been a, a, a wrestling champion in Pennsylvania. <laughs> you know, one of our guys in the, in the family was in for, uh, I think, federal assault on, on, on a, an assault on a federal narcotics officer. And he was around 6'3", 250. So we had, we had some strength and muscles. I can't say that, I can't say, look, nothing bad ever happened to me in prison. You know, I was never assaulted by any other inmates or guards, but it was scary. You know, I'm not a very big guy. You know, prison definitely keeps you on your toes all the time, especially until you, you get used to the place and you find out who your friends, who aren't your friends. You know, I was cautious about that, but, you know, I survived. And after, I'd say, the first month or so, you could see I can do this time. It's not that bad. It's not great. I wish I wasn't here, you know, but, uh, you know, I can... I tried to stay in touch with what was going on in the movement at the time and in the war and all that, and just trying to do my time. And when I got out, I was going to rejoin the movement, which I did, which around the time I think I, time I met you was right yes. after I got out of prison. Right? Yes. Yes. Uh, so now there's this documentary, the boys who said, no, it's an award-winning uh, film, uh, which has its uh, online launch October 15th to 17th. Boys who said no.com. Yeah, that's one way to get there. Um, that, that's the main website, and there's a place you can click to buy tickets. I think they cost $12 um, you know, to be able to screen the film over the weekend and also watch a live panel discussion that takes place at 5 p.m. on Sunday, the 17th. That's 5 p.m. California time, which will feature some of the people who were in the movie who are far more famous than I am. Um, well, let's let's talk about sure. some of those people and what, <laughs> what they were doing then. I guess the most famous is probably Joan Baez is in the, your film. Joan Baez, you know, was from the first time I ever met her, I've ever, ever heard her sing, was involved in the civil rights movement. You know, and she was, I mean, she sung at the March on Washington in 1963. And she was a longtime pacifist and she obviously and easily joined the anti-war movement. Um, she coined the phrase, for better or worse, uh, girls say yes to boys who say no. And she clearly identified with the movement. And then she ended up meeting and marrying one of the leading West Coast draft resistors, David Harris, who helped organize the resistance. He had been a, a student at Stanford. I think he was even the student body president. Uh, and um, he was involved in organizing. At the same time, we were organizing a draft card burning in New York. People were in the West Coast were trying to organize a future draft card turn-in. It's funny, in the days before um, email or even very, very good communication, we didn't even know about this until some of their organizers came east. And we said, no, that's great. We we're <laughs> doing the same thing. And then... Amazing. You know, once the resistance started in October 67, you know, I became part of that and was organizing draft card turn-ins. So also, also in the film is uh, Daniel Ellsberg, well-known figure. When did you cross paths with him? Well, I didn't meet him until many years later. I think I met him at Doug Dowd's apartment in the 1970s, you know, someday after the Pentagon Papers had come out. But certainly, I mean, I think, Everyone I knew in the anti-war movement was very impressed with his courage and his willingness to go to jail for many more years than we were looking by releasing these secret government documents. So I had tremendous respect for Ellsberg for what he was willing to take on. And I think he's famous for saying, you know, if you're not willing to, you know, if you're willing, not willing to go to jail to stop a war, well, what are you willing to do? 
you know, yeah. and so I'm a remarkable person. And he has always said that the draft resistance movement was a major influence on him in turning against the war and becoming more committed and, you know, doing eventually doing the work he did. And the, the other panel, one of the other panel uh, panelists is the director, Judith Ehrlich, uh, who had previously made an Oscar nominated film about Danielle's were called the most dangerous man in America. Yeah. Um, and one of the most interesting people in the film who's very little known is Cleveland Sellers. Tell us mm -hmm. about him. Cleveland Sellers was a SNCC organizer. I think he's from South Carolina. Uh, I actually met him. He was at Cornell in the spring of 1969 when black students there were, were, were rebelling against the university. And I was one of the white students and supporters who, you know, who were backing them. And I met Sellers at that point. Um, I think SNCC organizers, because SNCC was on the line, um, in a lot of dangerous circumstances in the South, because they would take they had taken an anti-draft position, uh, they were targets of the federal government. And I think Sellers was in a lot of different prisons, um, you know, um, and he did a long time. I mean, the, the civil rights organizer Bob Moses, who recently passed away, you know, tremendous influence on me, one of my heroes. Uh, um, he he went to Canada and then to Africa because they were coming after him in selective service but um, it's like the service system. But Sellers is very important to, to show the link between the two movements. I mean, when I joined the civil rights movement before I joined the anti-war movement. As I mentioned, my heroes were those young people who were my age who were standing up to racism and prejudice in the South. And I thought they were amazing. You know, the courage that they displayed and, uh, you know, in my own way, I wanted to try to emulate with they did in, in an anti-war context. And I th what's, I think, most impressive about the film, I can say this, I didn't make the film, I'm a, I'm, I'm a talking head in it, but I didn't make these choices, is that they showed the direct influence of civil rights actions on draft resistance, both in terms of people like Sellers, but also in people like Harris, who went to Mississippi in 1964. And even, or, or for, on people like me, who I didn't go to Mississippi, I was too young at that time, but you know, who were profoundly influenced by the struggle for civil rights. The new documentary, The Boys Who Said No, won awards on the festival circuit. It will have its online launch October 15th to 17th, and that will conclude with, an, uh, with uh, a live stream discussion on Sunday, uh, October 17th, this Sunday, 5 p.m. Pacific, which will feature uh, Joan Baez, Daniel Ellsberg, David Harris, uh, and the film's director, Judith Ehrlich, information and tickets at boyswhosaidno.com. Uh, and you can watch the film online starting October 15th and watch the live event Sunday, October 17th at 5 o'clock p.m. Pacific. Boyswhosaidno.com. Bruce Dancis, thanks for everything you've done and thanks for talking with us today. Good to talk to you, John. Take care. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Now it's time to talk with Ella Taylor about TV and film. 
Of course, she's a longtime film critic and writer whose work has appeared in the New York Times, the LA Weekly, and at NPR.org and other places. She also teaches at the USC School of Cinema and at Art Center in Pasadena. We reached her today at home in Santa Monica. Ella, welcome back. Thank you, John. Glad to be here. Well, I want to talk first about the documentary, My Name is Polly Murray. It's playing now on Prime Video. It's about a civil rights activist and feminist legal strategist, a remarkable person who most people don't know anything about. Uh, tell us about My Name is Polly Murray. Yes, myself included until, um, until I saw this movie, although I gather that there have been several academic books written about her by um, historians. Um, the film is made, it's worth noting, by um, Betsy West and Julie Cohen, who also made the, do the documentary about RBG. And that's significant. Um, I had mixed, the movie, that movie was an enormous success. It, it ran away with the box office because RBG is so well loved. I had misgivings about it because it fell into that trap that admiring documentaries do, which is to turn RBG into a saint, um, a species that does not exist in the human race, in, in my experience. Uh, and it wasn't really necessary because she's done lots of good work. So it was a very pop, um, likable film, but uh, had some notable gaps in it. There is no way to portray Pauli Murray as a saint. Um, she had a great deal to contend with in her life. Um, and, and the conditions of that life were not really con conducive to becoming a paragon. And that is exactly what makes this movie so much better than the RPG movie, although it is a it certainly is an, an homage, as you Americans say, um, homage, as we say. Uh, it's not, um, it doesn't gloss over the weaknesses that made her something less than a diplomat in her struggles for civil rights and other forms of justice, notably women's rights, in the way that RBG, um, uh, who I think was a strategist and, and a diplomat, and in fact, RBG appears in this movie very briefly to say that, <laughs> although um, the filmmakers came to Pauli Murray themselves through the, through the fact that RBG had mentioned um, her on the cover of the legal brief that she made uh, and credited her with the idea of using the 14th Amendment uh, in order to fight for women's, uh, women's rights. So they decided to make a move about a movie about it. They're definitely on a roll, these two women directors, because they've got another upcoming movie about Julia Child coming. Okay. Very busy. This certainly is the best one that I've seen so far. Pauli Murray, who was born at the beginning of the last century in 1910, had all sorts of burdens to bear. Um, she felt she was, um, from the beginning, she felt she was a boy in girls' clothing, um, which made her life very difficult to, at, at that time. She also was a light-skinned black woman, which, um, according to the movie, made her a pariah, something of a pariah in both worlds. And she grew up in North Carolina, you know, one of the great, whirlpools of uh, of racial injustice so 
what was fortunate for her is, and I don't mean this facetiously at all, her mother died when she was a toddler, I think, and she was taken to live with her grandmother and two elderly aunts. And that was her stroke of good fortune because these were liberal-minded, open-minded women. Uh, one of them referred to Paulie as my little boy girl, and she didn't mean that in a punitive sense at all. And they not only tolerated, but encouraged uh, her, her openness of mind, uh, but also her right to, to be the person that she wanted to be. Nonetheless, she got caught up in the depression, and she actually rode the rails for uh, dressed as a boy for her own self-protection throughout the period of the depression. And all through that time, she was actually writing poetry, which uh, some of which survives. But her aunts and her grandmother decided it was time to point her in the direction of a good education. And so they took her to New York, where she enrolled in Hunter College. She subsequently became um, a lawyer, uh, an intellectual, an activist, and finally, and very surprisingly, in her 60s, I believe it was, an Episcopal priest. <laughs> so she's an incredibly colorful character, was always getting into trouble because she always spoke her mind. Um, but she was a largely unsung outside the academy um, fighter for, uh, for civil rights and uh, for women's rights. She distanced herself very firmly from the Black Panther movement and, in fact, never accepted the word black. She didn't like it. And consistently to, to the end of her life, she referred to herself as a Negro. Which, or you know, so she was a born outlier um, and and continued as such. Uh, she was hired as an assistant professor at Brandeis, which is also my alma mater, and they denied her tenure on the grounds that her written work lacked flair and conceptual um, rigor. Oh dear. Rather unlike Brandeis, <laughs> I have to say, um, whose general political climate was, was very receptive. And Brandeis has had a transitional year program for many, many years um, for students of color, um, which they, they, it's a very good program, uh, which enables them by the time that they start studying to be on a par with other students. And she continued at Brandeis for many years while living very happily with a, a woman named Renee, who had been her colleague at the law firm where she uh, practiced law for a short while. She was devastated when Renee died in 1973, and uh, there followed one of several um, mental, I don't know if you could call them breakdowns exactly, but certainly um, nervous disorders that surfaced uh, from time to time. But she roared back and became an Episcopal priest. And the film itself has many, has lots of footage of her talking to an extremely articulate woman, or as she increasingly saw herself, man, even though she was a vocal proponent of, of women's rights. She wrote her autobiography during the, this period, and now she's emerging from the shadows. After her death uh, from pancreatic cancer at age 74, there is now a college at Yale 
named after her. What the movie doesn't explain, and perhaps it can't, is why, I mean, she refused to sit at the back of the bus 15 years before Rosa Parks refused to. Um, so it's an interesting, that would be, I think, an interesting question that they might have followed up more closely is the, the peculiar way in which some people come to the forefront of, the, of media coverage and others of them uh, do not. And she was certainly no shrinking violet, um, but I think she protected her privacy to, uh, to a great degree. So it's a very likable um, and interesting documentary about uh, a multifaceted woman who um, I think would have been delighted with the recognition that, that she got had she lived to, uh, to say. You can see the, the film on Amazon. My name is Paulie Murray, playing now on Amazon Prime Video. Now for something completely different can you recommend a film that is not about a neglected hero of the civil rights and feminist movements? Well, it's certainly a film with a decided uh, uh, feminist bent, but uh, although it's decided, it's very subtle because the film is made by <clears throat> Mia Hansen Love, um, a French director who uh, I'm a great fan of her movie. She's already made six other movies, and now she comes to us with Bergman Island. It's kind of a drama and a comedy and has all sorts of... She's not, not one to be bound by genre, genre boundaries. It's about a couple who come to the island of Faro where Ingmar Bergman um, filmed his most famous films from the 1960s, Persona, and um, I'm not sure if Smiles of a Summer Night was shot there, but a number of movies were, and I think maybe even scenes from a marriage. Now, this film is not to be confused, and I didn't know this, with Bergman Island, the documentary, which you can see on Criterion, which is a fascinating documentary, um, uh, just talking heads between, a, I think, Swedish journalist and, uh, and the director in his last years, and he's sitting in his house on Bergman Island, which was really his, uh, perhaps almost more than the, the many women who he directed and married, <laughs> um, was the muse for, uh, for his creativity. And I think that Mia Hansen-Love has um, relied quite heavily on the documentary for certain scenes in the movie. But this is something different. It's a drama about uh, a filmmaking couple. He is played by Tim Roth, who is one of the most phlegmatic actors in the world, and he's playing a very phlegmatic film director here. Yes. Has lots of recognition and and so on. His partner, Chris, um, is played by um, Alice Creeps. Uh, it is pronounced that way, I, even though it's not spelled that way. I checked. <laughs> Um, originally that role, she's much younger than he is, but she's a screenwriter who sometimes works on her own material and sometimes collaborates with him. Originally, that role was supposed to have been played by Greta Gerwig, the actress and director. She directed um, 
Lady Bird and Little Women. And I'm very glad that uh, she wasn't available, not because she's not a good actress, but because she looks and acts like an ingenue, whereas Vicky Creeps, who you may remember from uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's Phantom Threads as the young muse that captivates um, uh, Daniel Day-Lewis and she has a, she's just a lovely presence there's something ethereal and otherworldly about her but at the same time she's very strong-minded um, her hair is a complete mess there's nobody rushing to uh, do her makeup in between she's just a very perhaps a stand-in for, for Mia Handsome Love they have a very um, they arrive at the island to uh, each of them to write their projects either together or separately. There's clearly a lot of affection between them. But as time goes on, and they spend this time on the island much more separate than they ever imagined than they would, that they would. Um, it was filmed on location uh, on Faro Island, which is gorgeous. Um, but where uh, Ingmar Bergman was inspired by its austere wildness, um, Mia Hansen Love shoots it with a, as a much more lyrical um, place with its own uh, serene beauty after his death. As time goes on, we begin to see the tensions in this partnership. And you can see why Hanson Love is both very keen on Bergman and also takes issue because um, what she does in the course of this movie is do she does an end run around Bergman, who of course made his films primarily about women, um, but not always very sympathetically. And it becomes um, the young woman's story. It takes a left turn from a kind of um, lyrical realism into the story that the young woman is writing. And she's played, her character is played by Mia Vasikowska, the young Australian actress who's very good. And uh, this young woman is Pine, although she appears to have a partner now who's not there. She has come to the island for a wedding, but also with an ulterior motive to reconnect with the young man that she fell in love with uh, when she was much younger and with whom she has lost touch. He is played by the extremely dishy uh, and very good actor, Anders Danielson Lear, who was in the marvelous film called uh, Oslo August 31, in which he played a drug addict. He's an extraordinarily magnetic screen presence. And this is the story of their ambivalence, how they drop in and out of care for each other um, over the course of, uh, of three days uh, as they attend this wedding. That sounds like a lot to handle and also very <laughs> little. And uh, in some ways, because it's not a plot-heavy movie, most of it, you know, is dialogue in beautiful settings. There's some very funny parts of it. Um, they run into some locals when they get lost on the island and ask for directions to Ingmar Bergman's house. And these three locals are say to them, "Never heard of him. We don't know." <laughs> Apparently, this really happens in, happened to Bergman in real life, is that the islanders uh, fiercely protected his privacy by uh, pretending they had no idea who this person was. And it's, it, it's very delightfully uh, dealt with in the movie. 
And so the movie turns into a kind of uh, meditation on art, life, and, and particularly in ambivalence and ambiguity and uncertainty in intimate relationships between men and women. Whether it is relevant or not that uh, Mia Handsome Love was um, for many years lived with the uh, celebrated French director Olivier Assayas, with whom she has two children, I cannot say, although I would love to. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, the story in itself is, is, um, is just handled very beautifully, very subtly. The acting is wonderful. Uh, and you come away with this kind of wistful sense. It, it doesn't have much to do with Ingmar Bergman's most celebrated movies like Persona, but it has a lot to do with scenes from a marriage, which obviously was an influence on it. And uh, there's one scene where um, the bridegroom at the wedding launches into this absolutely vitriolic attack on Ingmar Bergman because he overstated what a terrible background he has. It's also very funny. Uh, and how his parents used to run into Ingmar Bergman at the grocery store and found him really unpleasant. And she has a comeback to this, which I won't, uh, I won't repeat here, but it's, it's really quite wonderful. So that in addition to the story of this relationship and what will become of it, which is also somewhat ambiguous, they have a small daughter who is figured into the equation, um, is also full of loving but critical allusions to, to Bergman as well. I just loved it. Bergman Island. The new fiction film, not to be confused with the older documentary, opens this Friday at theaters in Los Angeles, including the Landmark on Pico and several Lemley theaters around town. It will be uh, streaming VOD everywhere on October 22nd. We have time for one more. Briefly, the number two show right now on Netflix is Made, M-A-I-D. It's a series, of course, about a woman who works as a maid, 10 episodes starring the beautiful and compelling Margaret Qualley. We've seen her before in Quentin Tarantino's wonderful film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, where she plays one of the Manson girls. She's the hitchhiker Brad picks up on Sunset Strip. Uh, who puts her dirty feet up on his dashboard, but in Maid, she's a very different character. Margaret Qualley, who has enormous eyes and acts with them, <laughs> plays a young woman who leaves. Uh, she's from a, a poor background, and she leaves her relationship with an abusive uh, man who is also the father of her toddler uh, daughter, who, by the way, is marvelous in this <laughs> After a particularly egregious episode, um, he is an alcoholic and he gets very angry. She leaves. And the rest of the series is about the way in which you can fall off a cliff so easily when you are suddenly plunged into poverty. So there's a lot of very good stuff. It's directed by John Wells, who's a well-known director. There's a lot of good stuff on the mounting pressure on this young woman as she tries to negotiate the red tape so that she can prove that she's entitled to a home and benefits. And they deal with that very, very well. It's done in a dramatic way, so it's not, it's not dull at all. It's very well acted, and Margaret Qualley is the daughter of the actress 
Andy McDowell, who plays her, her bipolar mother in this series. Yes, yes. Now, I'm a great admirer of Andy McDowell, and I really admire the fact that she's let her marvelous hair go gray. <laughs> but um, she is so overdoing this bipolar mother that after a while, you really just want to shoo her off the screen. <laughs> Made immensely successful is based on a book um, by Stephanie Land. It was a best-selling memoir called Made Hard Work, Low Pay, and a Mother's Will to Survive. The 10 episodes are the whole book, so they say there's going to be no second season, despite the fact that it's one of the biggest hits on Netflix. So we've talked about My Name is Pauli Murray, a new documentary streaming now at Amazon Prime Video and Bergman's Island, the new fiction film opening Friday at theaters in Los Angeles, including the landmark on Pico and Lemley theaters around town, streaming October 22nd, and made a 10-part series streaming now on Netflix. Ella Taylor is our film and TV critic. Ella, thanks for talking with us today. You're very welcome, John. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our sound editors are Will Broughton and Alan Minsky. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Living in the USA.